I have chocolate breath. Yeah, they'll definitely be able to hear your chocolate breath. Maybe, you don't know. <laughs> LaCroix almost came out of your nose, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but it didn't. I have a and feeling important that that would not be very pleasant. It's never happened to you? No. It's not pleasant. <laughs> y'all this is the queer archive a queer feminist doctor who podcast and this week we're talking about time heist i'm brenna and i'm caitlin and this is your friendly reminder that we are very spoilery very what do you say let's pull it open and talk about these sweet ass looks do let's clara give me your suit give me your suit i want give me your coat I do want that suit, and also we have our second cutie patootie of the season, Sai. He is a cutie patootie. I would also say Sabra is also looking really cute. The doctor's looking cute. I know, his hair at the beginning is styled just so. It's just a very cute episode. It is. Del Fox is pretty banging Mm -hmm. with her bruja nails and the Escarlet is Sunrise color and everything. Yeah, you might even say she's still foxy. Oh, my God. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) I would say uh, Kara Brox's superior look with that hair down, the curls. Mm -hmm. It's very uh, Peggy Carter vibe. Both of them, really. Yes. Except for... No one is on Peggy Carter's level. No. Let's just get that out there, to be clear. But. But. Pretty big. Pretty good. (laughs) Apparently, actually, Michelle Gomez, who plays Missy, was offered the role of Miss Delvox. I could see it. I could totally see it. <laughs> Honestly, now that you say that, I feel like the actor who is playing her is just straight up channeling Michelle Gomez. Yeah, especially in the vault scene, right? Absolutely. I can't have too many of moi. Really that well. is Michelle Gomez energy for it sure. Is. <laughs> yeah, I love this episode in general. I do too. It's in my top 10. Caitlin and I have talked about this a lot, that my top 10 is kind of this weird smattering of episodes that I think are objectively the best and then episodes that I just really enjoy. And this is one of the latter. I really enjoy it. I think it's fun and I think that it moves at a good pace, but it's not like really substantial and it's not doing anything groundbreaking. There's no real like heavy lifting for character development. It's just, uh, you know, it's just here to have a good time. It's not listen which it does follow. They're very different episodes, and I think they're both really great in their own genre yeah. of episode. You can't operate at listen level all the time. No, you just... You can't sustain eventually, that. <laughs> be, you eventually just become desensitized to that level anyways. Yeah, and then it becomes a soap opera, which is not to say that sometimes Doctor Who is not totally an angsty teen soap opera. I say with so much love. But and also not to say that soap operas can't be rad. No, soap operas are rad. Hey, listen, if the doctor can get into the bank of Carabraxas to leave behind the briefcases, why doesn't he just save the teller then? <laughs> Don't pull on that string. Just I like how away. the script literally doesn't either. It's like, that's not our problem, hand waving. And then Insert it just literally hands. moves on and you're like, oh, okay, we're just going to, we're going to ignore that gaping plot hole and they move addressed on. It. <laughs> they addressed it just so... <laughs> They could be like, if you're thinking this, please don't. (laughs) I have two fun facts to close out Pull to Open. 
Give them to me. Number one, the music that's playing in the private vault when they enter is Mozart's Overture to the Abduction of the Seraglio, which is an opera about, do you want to guess? Tell me more. I'll know you'd be shocked. A hero and his assistant trying to rescue a romantic interest. Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds strangely familiar what a bunch and of relevant to the plot. Nerds. <laughs> All right, nerd. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and you know, the thing is, somebody on the internet immediately was like, that's Mozart's abduction of the Seraglio. I know what you're doing. Because that's how this fan base is, which I love. Syndication! <laughs> And then the only other fun fact is that when Delphox is, not Delphox, Carebraxis is grabbing things to leave, one of the things she carries out with her, the Yowza vase. The Yowza vase! From Angels in Manhattan. <laughs> that was a great little callback. Well, now that we've decided we're going to buy all these excellent outfits and glasses, let's zip over to the High Council of Gallifrey to talk about how this is yet another McKinnon banger. Douglas McKinnon again. The director, yeah. He said he wanted to do a classic heist movie, but with time travel. And I mean, who can blame him? I'd really love to rob a bank. It's one of my life ambitions. This is something I know. <laughs> and also, this is just like, listen, it's another episode with a lot of really interesting lighting, which is because it has the same director of photography, whose name is Susie Lavelle, and she was the first woman DP for the show. She also did Listen, like I said, and she will be responsible for Husbands of River Song in the future. Hey. Mm-hmm. That's what's up. She did an amazing job, like we've already talked about in Listen, and here... The lighting and the coloring, like every room gets this different hue treatment and there's a lot of interesting effects, both due to color and due to just the framing of the shot, Yeah, especially in how they treat Capaldi as a character. A lot of sinister shots that really frame him as what ends up being pretty much the villain of the episode. Yeah, I love there's the shot of them in the lift when Sabre is using the breath thing to bring up the next briefcase and there's an upward shot of Capaldi and he's wearing the all dark clothing and he just looks really sinister. So I think coupled with Susie Lavelle's lighting, Douglas McKinnon's doing a good job of making 12 look a little a little sketchy in this episode. Yeah, like the the green room shot. Yeah. Uh, there's like this really heavy green lighting and then there's a close-up of Capaldi's face that just looks really severe mm-hmm. compared to like the really soft lighting of his uh, conversation with Clara in the beginning of the episode yeah. in Clara's apartment. And it's great. Yeah. Great job. Yeah. And this episode was written by Stephen Thompson and also technically Moffat. Thompson, if you are looking for the credits, also previously wrote Curse of the Black Spot. Wolf. And Journey to the Center of the TARDIS. Double Wolf. Yeah. But he's, of course, written for a bunch of other things. You may have watched his Sherlock work. He wrote, I think, one of the worst episodes, The Blind Banker. But he also wrote The Reichenbach Fall and The Power of Three for Sherlock, not the Doctor Who Power of Three. (laughs) But I think those are both actually really good episodes of Sherlock. And he wrote this episode before Capaldi was cast. And then when the time came to prep it, I guess Peter Capaldi told him, make the doctor less, quote unquote, less user friendly. So make him Hmm. gruffer. And so Thompson went back and kind of did a polish run where he changed the way the doctor is. A polish run of unpolishing. Yeah. (laughs) That's dope. Interesting. This episode just has a great opening set of scenes, I Mm. would also add. It's just a phone, Clara. Nothing happens when you answer the phone. 
so good. Cut to them just like having Screaming. Fucking no idea of what the hell is going on. They wipes their memories. It's a fucking good hook. It is. You got me. Yeah. And they're all they're all sitting around the table staring at each other trying to figure out if they're in danger and their voices play of them saying, I'm so and so, I've agreed to this memory wipe of my own free consent. Just builds and builds yeah. on Oh shit, me too. Oh yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. All right. Who wants to talk about these wrestling clowns anyways? Mm. Not me. Not me either. You know what I want to do? What? Break into the Black Archive. Oh, I'm game for that. Let's go fuck shit up. Okay. That's where all the fun stuff is anyways. It's true. Let's go. All right. So here in the Black Archive, we talk about only the fun stuff. We're talking race, class, bodies, gender, all the good stuff. Hell yeah. So first thing I'd like to talk about is this episode thinks it's real slick about the carceral state, I guess. Because mm. we've got, Sai's got a prison tattoo on his neck, so it's a permanent mark that he's a criminal, but he is demonstrably a good dude with a big heart who does what he can to protect the people in his life. And <gasps> You mean that people who are incarcerated are humans? Can you believe? They have inner rich lives with yeah, people also, they yeah, love? That they can be a full set of nuances, a myriad. They contain multitudes. And also, obviously, the scene with the teller in the bank lobby where the guy gets souped, for lack of a better word, where when Del Fox comes out and accuses him, mm-hmm. and he's like, no, and she goes, oh, it doesn't really matter. We'll establish the details later. So I think this episode is intending to be an indictment of the carceral state, but... You know what? Let's let's just get into it. Okay. Because, you know, like, this episode does do something exceedingly shitty right off the bat with that scene. Yeah. When the bank basically surrounds a black customer for sensing his guilt, <laughs> for being, his guilt is being detected. And, you know, without trial, without evidence. Right. An extrajudicial execution. Exactly. And after they proceed to torture and incarcerate him, we find out. Oh, he wasn't even guilty. Yeah. We had to watch an innocent black man get accused and tortured as a spectacle. Mm-hmm. It's purposely a spectacle, right? It's yes. supposed to be a warning. And for a lot of Doctor Who viewers, this kind of takes us out of the episode for a bit. This episode is otherwise really fun, a really great, you know, time heist episode. Yeah. Super fun. But it's unnecessary to take such a large part of your viewership out and have to deal with that because we end up having to do so much extra work to just enjoy the rest of this fictional story because the writing insists on reinforcing stereotypes that, you know, affect us, affect our community, affect the people that we love, and they result in real-life violence, real-life, even state-sanctioned violence against our community. So it just, it's frustrating. Sometimes we just wish we could have 45 minutes totally away from that. And then, of course, it's not even in just that scene. We get another scene of him, and he is you know, divorced of all agency in a literal prison cell, shackled, meant to serve as a warning to others. And then Sai literally says, don't let me end up like that. Yeah. It's really fucked up. It is. So just whose idea in the writing room was it to have a black man specifically to be the customer to receive an unjust torture and incarceration as a spectacle to establish the security quality of a bank for star system owners? Yeah. That was just a bullshit decision that they didn't have to make yeah and it might not be the writer it might have been the casting director or whoever but somebody fucked up yep because they 
Lots of somebody's fucked up. Yeah. This is, again, just evidence that they center a white audience yeah, that doesn't that, have to think about this. And that white is the default, yep, right? Yep. Which is part of why it's so nasty that this is set in a bank because that serves to double up on the whiteness is the default and whiteness Oof. is the the standard. Because as you were saying earlier, when we were talking about this, banks are ultra-white spaces. Like when you think of a bank, you think of Wall Street or like white banker dudes in their three-piece suits. Yep, it's a super loaded space. Yep. So when I say white space, I mean a place where white people can feel, you know, at home and unquestioned in a way that racialized people cannot. Yeah. So racialized people will be treated with suspicion in these places, even like going to the store, you know, you have the salesperson hovering over you, kind of checking if you're stealing or not. Yeah. And in the outdoor environment, hiking or swimming at the pool, a racialized person is going to be policed for even the things that they wear to the pool or just questions for being on trails at all. Yeah. So now the bank, as Brenna was saying, it's a super white space because it's connected to money. It represents wealth, who has access to it, who doesn't. And I think it's important to differentiate wealth from richness here, yeah. from who can be rich. So someone can get rich, right? Even within a short period of time, you can get rich. But wealth is something that is passed down. And historically, it's been kept out of black communities at a systemic policy level. So even if a black person is rich and, you know, in these particular spaces for the ultra rich, they're still going to be met with suspicion. And that's why this scene is so extra shitty. Yeah. They, they chose a black man to to enact this violence towards. Yeah. And, you know, the only thing that we need to know that we're not overreacting or being like really sensitive readers is who does Sabra turn into so that they can get into the bank? Oh, I dude. The tea is exceptionally good today. Who made this? Absolutely. I said what I said. Cause it's 100% true. Yeah. The, it wouldn't have worked any other way. No. I know I've heard an argument here that, well, this is a British show. You're talking about an American situation and you know, that's not an issue over here. Blah, blah, blah. True, this is a British show, but you cannot tell me that America is the only place where white supremacy benefits off the villainization of racialized people, specifically black people. Mm -hmm. Anti-blackness is a global thing. <laughs> and Britain, really, of all places? <laughs> a bold claim. The home of the colonizers? Calm down with your we're Britain, not America. We don't have that problem yeah. about anti-blackness. Don't y'all have like a note on the Museum of Britain website that says, yeah, yeah, we stole the shit from other people and they're like autonomous nations or whatever, but they don't deserve it because they won't take care of it. So it's ours now. Ooh. If you, I'll put a link in the show notes if you don't believe me. It is really there. <laughs> it's so unashamed. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, the thing is... <sighs> Even if let's let's pretend let's pretend that the Bank of Carabraxis isn't supposed to be some sort of universe bank that includes all peoples or whatever. And let's pretend that this is a British show that's only meant for British people. The fact of the matter is that a huge portion of their viewership is not from Britain, that they come from a variety of backgrounds and that a huge share of the viewership comes from America. So this is about the time in my class. If my students were saying this to me, I would say it 
authorial intention doesn't matter. So the creator's intention doesn't really matter here. What matters is that all of these tensions and texts exist in the real world. So somebody somewhere should have acknowledged that they were perpetuating white supremacist notions and they needed to do something differently to avoid really just putting their foot in it. Because it, do- it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're like, we're British and that's not a problem for us. First of all, bullshit Windrush generation. But second <laughs> of all, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yep. Boo to author all intent. And Boo. Being the author's ex- dead. And being excused from the consequences of the impact of your words and your plot on people outside of your experience. Yeah. That's and that, bullshit. That doesn't just go for the show, by the way. That's a standard I try to hold myself to daily. Absolutely. That my intentions, they matter, but also the impact of my actions and my choices they also count for something too. So even if it was unintentional, if somebody comes to me and says, that was shitty because of these reasons, my responsibility is to say, ooh, I really fucked it, I'm sorry. And to not only acknowledge my role in that, but also to ask for forgiveness. You should at least acknowledge in some small way how you are perpetuating white supremacy. I think they do an okay, we'll get there in three seasons. Mm -hmm. They do an okay job of this when they do Rosa. Please hear me say, exceedingly okay and the fact that it takes so long i'll stop right there (laughs) only 52 years (laughs) well it takes so long but also like the three-step process because there's two other preceding very similar episodes that i would compare to we have with martha the shakespeare code was kind of like the first where we acknowledge race and do a really shitty job at it and also thin ice and then thin ice and then we get to rosa yep it's they're like very small baby steps towards their goal is kind of like diversity and yeah. That's not the point because you can still represent people and do violence to them. Yeah, I would say up through Chibnall or until before Chibnall takes over, they are very much participating in what it was like super in vogue in the late 90s and early 2000s, which is these are giant scare quotes, race blind casting. Yeah. So they're acting like race doesn't actually have any substantial impact on these characters or how they move through the world, which is racist ass bullshit in case you were waiting for it. But that these characters do have, like, the race is tied to real-world implications, mm-hmm. so to fail to acknowledge that is a huge mistake. I'm not saying Chibnall's doing an incredible job of that in the most recent series of Doctor Who, but at, at least they're acknowledging it and acting like these characters' races have real impact and mm-hmm. cultural differences when they move through the world. Absolutely. And I'm going to add two other choices that they make in this episode that really are, you know, coming from the same ignorance. Mm. One, the teller himself is enslaved and used to control other people for the wealthy and the powerful, right? And ain't that always the way? Like, the wealthy and the powerful, to ensure their security from those they have power over, they just weaponize one oppressed population over another. Yeah. And against one another. You know, let's hold the race facing extinction hostage and continue to build our wealth off the backs of their enslavement. And again... Signed an exclusive deal. We signed an exclusive deal. That's colonizer language. And then to top it off... The next thing we see is Sabra using the shredder, which at this point in the episode, if you're watching it for the first time, we are led to believe it's her death. So we get that whole scene with the black man in the lobby. Yeah. Then we get Sabra being the first character of the main cast that dies. Yeah. Especially when you compare it against Sai's death. He gets to be a hero. Yeah, and Sabra's last word is, oh, a good man. I left it late to meet one of those. So even her death is not about her. It's about about meeting a good man. Yeah. And then Sai over here is 
getting to be, again, a hero. He's yes. saving a white woman's life. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's in keeping with Sai's character in this in this episode, right? That he is somebody who is willing to take really extreme measures and make huge sacrifices to protect the people he cares about. But it yeah. is incredibly gendered that his death is like the heroic death to protect the delicate lady and Sabra's is about recognizing how good a man is. Although, to be fair, it's, again, this is very part and parcel of this episode because the ending of this episode, the doctor celebrating about how great that robbing a bank, robbing a whole bank, beat that for a date. Mm -hmm. It just really demonstrates how deeply ingrained compulsory heteronormativity is for Moffat as a showrunner. Yeah. You know what? Let's just talk about compulsory heteronormativity a bit. Yeah. So compulsory heteronormativity is an essay. It was written by Adrian Rich in 1980. Adrian Rich was a radical feminist in the 70s and 80s, and she was a lesbian. And she's also, she wrote a lot of stuff. Anyways, she writes compulsory heteronormativity at the time as a criticism of the field of criticism overall. And one of its main ideas is that heteronormativity is an institution, like whiteness is an institution or like ableism is an institution. So she's saying people aren't actually heteronormative, but it is one of many ways that the people in power protect their power and also keep society, quote unquote, in line. And so she says people act heteronormative because otherwise there are social consequences for it. And one of the other byproducts of this, she says, is that because heteronormativity is compulsory, that every narrative will inevitably move towards a man and a woman getting together, getting married, procreating, because that's what compulsory heteronormativity demands. So this actually ends up expressing itself in other ways in that Every narrative that has a man and a woman, they must be romantically interested eventually, or even if they're not, even if they're two characters of the same gender, sometimes compulsory heteronormativity makes us expect a romance to occur. So it's the idea that just because you're in the room together, you will eventually tend towards romance because that's the only narrative that matters. And we see that here because Clara and Sai are, I think, vibing pretty hard, even though Clara's getting ready to go. She's literally actually already dressed and her face is colored <laughs> in to go on her second date with Danny Pink. So it's just part of the, it's definitely part of the Moffat era. The doctor's already established that he's not interested in I'm not your boyfriend he tells her but still what he's trying to do is demonstrate that he can make the best dates and he is worthy of Clara's attention and should get all of it it's still the role they have to play yeah silly yeah and Clara has like maybe three roles in this whole episode mm. ask the doctor what are you doing now unlocking Sai's tragic backstory and getting rescued by Sai yeah which brings us to the Bechtel and Duvernay test. Mm. So Duvernay, it technically skates by yeah. passing. Yeah, I think Sabra is, like, she has agency and she's developed enough that she's not just a piece of, like, scenery in the white characters' worlds. Right. She has will and volition and does things that she wants and talks about what she doesn't want. And I feel like that passes. It's not just a prop. Yeah, it's not like a strong pass, but it. It passes. All right, we'll give it to them. Okay. Uh, Bechtel, I will not give it to them. No, we're going to rule sorry. no. I think that it's important to say, so for the like the original Bechtel test, the rules were there had to be two lady characters who had to be, like they had to have names, and they had to be having a conversation about not a man. And so Clara and Sabra do exchange like two lines I think it is, in the scene. Two. Yeah, literally two lines, um, which is when 
Clara says, your face when we first saw you. And Sabra says, I touched the worm. And then she says something about her hologram shell. And I just don't think that passes. I feel like for here at the Queer Archive, we're going to ask there be an actual substantial conversation. The annoying thing is, is that they totally could have taken the opportunity to actually make it pass well. If they would have paired Clara and Sabra together to kind of unpack Sabra's backstory and have a good, vulnerable conversation. But no, of course, they pair Clara with the young cutie patootie. Yeah. And the doctor gets paired with Sabra. If a man has like a tragic backstory, a woman needs to be the one to be there to listen to him, to dig that out of him. And also, why does it even have to be this combination? Couldn't Sabra have been a man and Sai been a woman? Or both women? Or God forbid, somebody non-binary or two somebody non-binaries? Like, why does it have to be this combo happening in this episode? The human who is part technology is the dude. And the human who is mutant, whose powers, or maybe even a curse, is associated with her touch, is a woman. She empathizes so much with someone that she literally becomes them with her touch. That's (laughs) super gendered. Like, come on. Honestly, what the fuck is that noise? Hey, listen, uh, this is a heist episode, and and you know how I've always wanted to be a part of a heist, so I stole a vortex manipulator from one of the shelves over there. Hell yeah. Let's use it and get out of here so we can head to the heart of the TARDIS. Great. While we're on our speedy getaway, we can play a word from our sponsors. Ooh, great idea. This podcast is brought to you by Dion Kisumu Company's Hologram Shell. Picking out an outfit in the morning takes time and planning, and who can be bothered with that when you're still waking up? Even then, during the day, you have to think about removing and adding layers, futzing with things in the bathroom, and think of the embarrassment that happens when someone shows up in the same outfit as you. Well, thanks to DKC's patented hologram shell, planning out outfits is a thing of the past. Just put on one of the hologram's shell bracelets, now available in seven fashionable styles. Activate the hologram, and DKC's hologram shell will automate an outfit based on your body type, interests, and style preferences. DKC's hologram shell. For fashion as unique as you are. The Heart of the Tardis. Let's talk about feels. Let's talk about morals. Go. Okay, I think there's two main threads that this episode is developing. I think the first one is that this episode is asking us to reconsider what it means to be human. Because we've got two people who identify as human variants. You've got Psy, who's a, quote, augmented human, more than human because of the technology that he has. And we've got Sabra, who's a mutant. So she's also more than human because she can do more than a, quote, unquote, standard human can. I do think that this season, season eight, that's series, but if I say series, if I say series and everyone thinks it's the whole thing. So I think season eight of Doctor Who in particular is really intensely interested in destabilizing the category of human altogether. Even though the doctor has said, I'm not a human in his first episode, I think 12's narrative trajectory is centered on a very human growth arc. So I think that it's trying to sort of fuzz up the the boundary between human and person in order to emphasize that the doctor, even though for all of his insistence that he's not a human, he's different, he's better than you silly humans, even though he loves them, he's ultimately going to become more and more like the humans he adores. Yep. 
Well said. Another part of his arc that they are developing right alongside that is the way in which he becomes, quote-unquote, human. Yeah. Here he is quoted as, or named as, professional detachment. Yeah. So they're doing a really straightforward job of saying, this doctor is detached. This doctor doesn't consider the human niceties as worth his time. Yeah. And he continues in this episode to leave that to Clara. Yeah. They're just sending that point home. Yeah. Which, side note, before I, I think, before we talk about the next thing, Sai's burn to Clara is sick, right? Because he says, oh, is that where the name comes from? The doctor, the professional detachment. And when he walks away and Clara's like, he's not really like that. And Sai says, oh, you must have been traveling with him for a long time because you're really good at those excuses. Woo! Better call in the burn unit. Brutal. The burn unit. <laughs> That's a very classic internet joke. And you can tell on her face that, damn, does she feel that one. Yeah. Because she really treasures, she prizes her ability to work with people on their emotions and to be the tuned in one, right? That's why she's taken on the doctor as one of her hobbies, because she's good at it. She is. She has high emotional intelligence, and she is good at navigating social spaces. So I think you're absolutely right. She that burn really hurts her. And then I think the second thread that this episode's really, really interested in is emphasizing how much we need other people. We need community is, I think, the thesis of this episode. Yeah. Because Sai's choice to wipe his memory was done to protect his loved ones and the people that worked with him. He said, anyone I ever knew. But he also cites it at, as his greatest shortcoming, right? When he, he saves Clara, he says, at the end of your life, Clara, when you look back on everything you've done, you'll see people you love and the people that you were surrounded by. And I'll see no one. And that's why he says, it will hurt me less to die than it will hurt you because I'm not losing anything. That's sad. I feel sad for you, buddy. That's rough, buddy. The thing that makes life worth it. Yeah, community. Having a community around you. A chosen fandom. And that's absolutely reinforced with Sabra's story as well. Yes. It's like the moral of her story. Yeah. Her mutation causes her to appear as any living thing she touches, and she's saying that prevents her from making sustainable connections with other people because they find her suspicious because they can't see her. They can only see other people. That's also extremely sad, which is, of course, reinforced by the doctor's story, too. Yeah, yeah. Where are his people? Who knows? Yeah. Off being assholes somewhere. All right. I guess it's that time again. To send something to a Wait. crack in time. What? Do you smell that? Yeah, I do. What's that? Oh, you know what that is? Some racist-ass bullshit. <laughs> what the fuck is that lady wearing in the scene with Clemso? She is in a whole-ass geisha outfit with the full makeup and the bustle and everything. What the fuck? He just plucked her oh out of God. history and called it futuristic yeah. because it's different oh oh my god other. and it's not even the only one either when no. they're first walking through the lobby you've got a group of people who are wearing a huge huge scare quotes again pan-african robes i guess they're in the right hand corner of the screen right behind the doctor and crew when they walk in yeah, yeah. and there's also a guy who walks by in a black full-length robe and a head covering i think it's a kafia i'm not sure so you've got three people who are wearing actually mm -hmm. historical based outfits including one that's actually fr from the past from the way past is this not a fucking bank from the future for the whole 
whole universe? Why are these people dressed like this? Meanwhile, there's a bunch of white people in, like, actual kind of futuristic fashion yeah. that you can imagine like some plastic neon ass visors yeah. and some like garbage bag coats yeah and like weird makeup too like there's a couple of people they show in the informational video that the architect gives that have the weird makeup like saber has where it's like those big blocks of black eyeshadow that I mean, somebody on Euphoria might wear it, but most of us wouldn't wear it. But there are people who are costumed appropriately for the quote-unquote future, and then they just, like, plucked these people out of time, real-life locations, Mm -hmm. and put them in this scene, and they were like, that's futuristic. These equate. What the fuck? Brenna, it's just super eccentric and super cool. So fucking racist. (laughs) Send it to a crack in time and space. Bye, Ronimo. Bitch. And now, to get that taste out of our mouth, let's talk about our favorite three moments. All right, what's yours? One of them is solely based on Peter Capaldi's delivery and its eyebrows. Basically, it's the eyebrows. Yeah. <laughs> I also have a Peter Capaldi quote, very much attributed to his delivery, when he's talking to Kara Braxis and just totally shifts into, oh, I thought we were getting along famously. <laughs> Am I just, like, misreading the signals? <laughs> So cute. Peter Cabaldi is adorable. Uh, and then the third one is when the teller is souping it up with the doctor. And the doctor says, what do you think of the new look? I was going for minimalism, but I think I ended up with magician. <laughs> I love, Because people, the internet shaded that costume so hard when they first gave the promotional image of him. Also because it had that super cheesy tagline, 100% rebel time lord. Oh my god. Uh, that's sucked but i mean his outfit i think they talk about it on tarvis that it's like pretty plain and he has to like unbutton it and hold it funny to show the cute lining on the inside oh and he's a hella stunt queen and yeah he's like he is a stunt queen what do you think <laughs> <laughs> but i do want to say peter capaldi has said in interviews the reason he chose a really boring plain costume was because he said he wanted it to be easy and cheap for people to be able to recreate it when they're cosplaying so i think it's great that he's making fun of i know i think it's great that he's making fun of that silly costume that's super dorky and i'm really glad that he abandons it for the sweet ass velvet coat but But remember peter capaldi remains the goat because absolutely a real one he is a real one even when they were picking out his costume he was like i'm gonna do this because it's what's good for the fans damn Anyways, I think uh, we can consider this time heisted. Wah, wah, wah. I actually did it. <laughs> did do it. <laughs> I'm going to leave it in, too. Mm-hmm. All right. You're right. That's it for Time Heist. But you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Queer Archive Pod to keep up with what's coming next. And we also definitely want to hear from you. So if you have thoughts or feels about some of the racist ass bullshit we talked about in this episode or just like fun stuff, you know, like how Peter Capaldi's outfit is silly, uh, let us know. And please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice because it helps other people find us. Until next time, be gay. Rob a bank. Rob a whole bank. Yeah. Tune on your speakers and please be my doctor, whoever, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah.